But uh, we are in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and we are going to be looking at the wickedness of uh, the human race. Now, it started in Genesis 3 with uh, Adam and Eve. It started with a couple. And then in Genesis chapter 4, it progressed to the family. And now, after 1,600 years we see um, the impact that it has had on all of humanity. And God is about to judge man's wickedness. And we're going to see through this passage of Scripture this morning that God has limits when it comes to uh, wickedness. God is a patient God, but uh, there are deadlines And God has come through the first time in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, as we are going to look at the flood. And this is a precursor of what God is going to do at the end of time. And he's not going to destroy the earth with a flood. He promises not to do that again. But he is going to destroy the earth with fire. And if he did it the first time, church, you can bet he can, he will do it the second time as well. So, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Um, I wish somebody else was preaching these verses this morning. <laughs> this is one of the thorniest uh, passages of Scripture in the uh, Old Testament. And uh, it has to do with the sons of God. But... Uh, Before we get to that, let me just read verses 1 through 8 this morning that we're going to be looking at. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men, who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. I've titled this message this morning, Grace in the midst of judgment. You know, as we're going through the book of Genesis, we see the judgment of God. But 
as we see the judgment of God, we continually see the grace of God simultaneously. And we'll get in that in just a moment. But uh, the first question that I want to attempt to answer this morning, and I'm not sure I'm going to do a very good job. I don't want to be uh, confusing um, over verses 1 and 2. But the question is, who are the sons of God? And uh, there's a couple different versions. I'm going to kind of give you the 33,000-foot elevation of this interpretation. But there is the, the, the fallen man view, and then there is the fallen angel view. Now, the fallen man view came into being around the 2nd century A.D., up until this point, uh, the, the, the accepted interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 was the fallen angel view. But uh, um, in the 2nd century, uh, Jewish scholars in particular began to look at the sons of God, and uh, they began to determine that that wasn't referring to fallen angels, but that was referring to the line of Seth. And if you go into this interpretation, it gets kind of convoluted, and I'm not going to get convoluted this morning, but it was either the, 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 the sons of God in the line of Seth who believed in God saw the, the beauty in the daughters of man um, in Cain's line. And these were godless women. And so the line of Cain began to marry the line of Seth. And these produced um, the, the, um, the, the daughters of man that we see in verse 4. Now, there's a lot of subcategories again, and I'm not going to go into those this morning. But, uh, but this was the fallen view of, of man. And, uh, and we see, you know, in the Old Testament that when it came to Israel, uh, Israel was identified as the sons of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 and Jeremiah chapter 3 verse uh, 19. And God was warning his people not to be associated with uh, the, the cult followers that were going to be surrounding them as they entered uh, the promised land. In Jeremiah, the people of God had wandered away from uh, God's uh, will, God's plan for the nation of Israel. And so because they got caught up in the beauty of uh, Secular culture, um, they suffered the consequences. And so we see, you know, the Bible referring to the sons of God as the nation of Israel. And there are other interpretations that as we read uh, the scripture, the Old and New Testament in particular, sons of God refer to the children of God. But in the fallen uh, angel view, 
uh, we see that sons of God can also be attributed to um, Satan and the fallen angels. And uh, if you look at the book of Job, now the book of Job was most likely written around the same time that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Okay, it's probably the oldest text of Scripture, the book of Job. And Job describes the sons of God as um, as as demons. They were in the, the, the presence, the court of, of the temple, of the presence of God in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and in Job chapter 2, verse 1. And in Job chapter 38, verse 7. And as the Bible describes the sons of God, we see the presence of the, of Satan himself. And so this can be associated with the, uh, the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I happen to believe that the fallen angel view is the correct interpretation of Scripture. Because if you go to First and Second Peter and Jude, they affirm this view of Genesis chapter 6. And I want to read just a couple uh, passages this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 19 and 20. Peter talks about this passage of Noah and the flood. And in verse 19, he says this. Let me start with verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Speaking of Jesus' death and what happened between his death and his resurrection, the Bible says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally disobeyed when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So this is referring to the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. They had crossed the boundary line. They had had sexual relationships with um, the daughters of man. And because they were disobedient to God, they did something that God never intended them to do. They were cast into prison. And when the Bible says that Jesus, when he died, he made a visit to that prison in the Spirit. And he told them the truth of what he had just accomplished. Uh, Satan didn't have the last word and that they were going to continue to remain in that prison until they're cast into the lake of fire 
for all eternity. They're never going to get out. That was what Jesus did between his death and his resurrection. And it's these angels that he is um, preaching to um, in 1 Peter chapter 3. So we see this, uh, Peter mentioning this, and then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Bible says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world, of the ungodly, if by, and all, and, and going on there. So again, Peter is referring to these angels in Genesis chapter 6 and, um, in, and their disobedience and them paying the price. And we see this in Judge, uh, or Jude verses 5 and 6 as well. We won't take the time to read that, but you can note that in your margin of your Bible. And you can read that a, a bit later. But uh, what's difficult with uh, this view? Well, angels are sexless beings. And so it's impossible for them to have sexual relationships with, uh, with mankind, the daughters of man. Uh, as we see in Matthew chapter 22, verse... 30, um, angels do not have the ability to materialize into human bodies. And if you go to uh, Luke chapter 24, and you remember the story when Jesus arose and uh, he uh, appeared before his disciples, Luke chapter 24, verses 37 through 43, the disciples were scared. They thought it was a spirit. And, uh, and with spirits, they can't eat food. And in this text, uh, Jesus is showing us, telling us that, uh, when it came to Jesus' body, bodily, when it came to Jesus' resurrection, it was a body resurrection. It was a physical body. And he told his disciples, do you have some food that I can eat? And the Bible says that they gave uh, the disciples gave Jesus food, and he ate uh, in their in their presence. Angels can't do that. So, what's happening in this text in Genesis chapter six? I believe that this is um, demon possession. These fallen angels entered uh, the wicked hearts, the wicked bodies of man, and these men were influenced by this demonic relationship, and these demons used man for their own sinful purposes. We see this in the New Testament. 
We see this with the, uh, the Gadarene, uh, the demon possession of the Gadarene in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We also see this in the life of Judas. When Judas betrayed Jesus, the Bible says that Satan entered him in John chapter 13, verse 27. Now, when Satan enters people, man is still accountable for the decisions, the choices that they make. They can't pin that on the devil. They can't claim, well, the devil made me do it. No, it's uh, demons using the wicked heart of man. We also see this in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, when Satan himself, uh, he didn't enter a human being, he entered a serpent and tempted Eve to sin. What was the temptation? Hey, if you eat of this fruit, you can be like God. And she had a desire to want to be like God. In church, that has been the struggle of mankind ever since. Man has the desire to be like God. Not to be accountable to God, be able to make his own choices and live his own life and not be responsible, accountable for, for his sin. We see in this in the, the, the cult of the Canaanites. There was this idea that uh, you could be like God, you could become like God, you become immortal if you go to our temple and worship with our temple prostitutes. This, this is the mind of the enemy. Now going back to Genesis chapter, chapter 6, I want you to see in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, I mean, this multiplication has been taking place for 1,600 years. You know, the, the, these fallen angels just didn't get the idea to uh, enter um, uh, men's bodies at the tail end. No, this has been going on all along. And that's just like Satan, church. Satan likes to take what God said is good, what God said is beautiful. When he saw, when he made Adam and Eve and he stood back, God said, it is very good. He told Adam and Eve to multiply and to fill the earth. This was God's will and man was... Uh, was fulfilling God's will at this time. But Satan always has an alternative. Satan always has a counterfeit. Satan wants to twist and um, corrupt what God said is good. And so as the people of God are fulfilling God's purpose and will throughout this period of time, 
fallen angels have been entering the hearts of man and producing the daughters of man. And corruption was continuing to grow. Like I said, this desire to want to be like God, it continues even through today. If you look at the Mormon religion, the Mormon religion believes that one day they can be a god of their own planet. This is what uh, the Journal of Discourses says, um, quoting Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. He said, Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. Brigham Young, the second prophet of uh, the Mormon church, delivered this message in August, on August 8, 1852, in which he affirmed uh, this teaching, the Lord created you and me for the purpose of being gods like himself. This is the heart of man, the evil, wicked heart of man. And man, throughout all these millenniums, have had a desire to be like God. And so here you have in Genesis chapter 6, these fallen angels who are convincing the daughters of man just like Satan in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve. Hey, did God really say? You don't need God. You can be like God if you just do what I tell you to do. I see these fallen angels as false teachers in Genesis 6. And I want to read... 2 Peter chapter 2. So go, go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, Peter is talking about false teachers who have entered the church. Uh, and this is in the same context of uh, Noah and Chapters 7 and 8. But let me read, starting with verse 1 this morning. Second Peter 2. If I can get to Second Peter, I'm in First Peter. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose... Among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, for their destruction is not sleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, uh, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned condemn them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul after their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels through greater, though greater in pow, might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against those, against them before the Lord. So here we see false teachers, not only in the New Testament church that Peter is addressing here, but he's associating those false teachers with those fallen uh, angels who seduced the daughters of man and entered the hearts of wicked man in Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> so this was, this is what was a cruel and wicked period of time. You know, we look at today and we think about how wicked things are today. Church, they don't compare to how wicked they were in Genesis chapter 6. But we're getting there, okay? And the the Bible promises that we're going to get there. But I want to encourage you that even though God is going to pronounce judgment uh, at the end of time, you know what? God has the ability to protect you. Look at verse 11 again. Or verse um, 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If you're a child of God, if you're a man or woman of faith, my friends, I don't know what the end's going to look like. I don't know if we're going to be raptured before the tribulation or in the middle of tribulation or after tribulation, but the Bible says 
God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He is going to protect you. You don't have to be afraid, even if they put you to death. Jesus says, don't fear man who can only put you to death. Fear God who can cast you into hell. With God, even in death, you and I can be protected. And so, this is verses 1 and 2. I'm going to go a lot faster now. Okay? I believe um, the, the, uh, the, the sons of God are fallen angels and that the New Testament affirms this idea. Now in verse 3, hey, we see divine protection. Verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days will be a hundred and twenty years. Like I said earlier, God has limits when it comes to sin. God's not going to strive with man forever. That word strive or the word um, abide, that means to uh, protect or shield or remain with man. Uh, God's not going to allow the human race to continue in wickedness much longer. He's going to put a limit of 120 years. Now, the question is, is this a new age limit for man? Or is this the time left for the human race before the flood comes? And the answer is yes. It's both. Uh, the life, life, lifespan of man is going to be greatly shortened. Up until this point, man has the ability to live eight, nine hundred plus years. But uh, God is not going to strive with man forever. And we see after the flood that the average age is approximately 120 years. But there are saints of the Old Testament who live beyond that. But, uh, but very few. And so we see God having a limit when it comes to uh, wickedness. This is God's divine intervention. And then in verse 4 of chapter 6, we see the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are the Nephilim? Well, the Nephilim are the offspring of um, the fallen angels, the uh, demon-possessed men who would have relationship with uh, the daughters of man. And uh, the Nephilim... Uh, if you look at that meaning of the word Nephilim, it means to fall. And so they were the offspring, which would indicate that they were the offspring of the fallen angels. 
There's only one other incident where we see Nephilim mentioned in the Bible. That's in Numbers chapter 13, verses 30 through 33. And you know the story when um, Israel sent in the 12 spies and 10 of the spies came back and they were afraid. They felt like grasshoppers um, uh, in the presence of these giants who were the Nephilim. Um, and so, uh, so we see the influence of Nephilim even after the flood. Okay. Um, now, um, as you read uh, the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament, uh, Goliath could have been related to the Nephilim as you read about his size and stature. But um, in Genesis chapter 6, they're not described as giants in this passage. They're described as mighty men, men of renown. And so they're known for making a name for themselves in wicked ways. They're renowned for this. And they have a long, and, and they've been, and had been for a long time with no apparent end in sight. Which means they were the Nephilim of old. And so humanity has been around for approximately 1600 years. And most likely the Nephilim were part of, um, of man's multiplication throughout this entire time. But understand this, they are men. They're not half-breeds, okay? They're not half-angel uh, and, and half-man. No, they are merely men. And the same word for men in verse 4 is the same word for man that's listed in verses 5 through 8. Okay? So they are not uniquely different. They are all um, uh, men just like everyone else. And so that's the first four verses. And then verses 4 through 8, we see the major message of the Bible again. And that message is this. Sin must be punished. The major message of the Bible is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, even though that's true. The major message of the Bible is sin must be punished. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, and now we are going to see this in Genesis chapter 6. And in God's judgment of mankind in Genesis chapters 7 and 8, it is going to be 
a a supernatural judgment who is going to blot man from the face of the earth. And, uh, but I want you to see the grace of God at the same time. Even though God's going to judge the earth, God is also a God of patience. He's giving man time, mankind 120 years to repent, to turn from their wicked ways. Do they? No. But, but God is patient. And God's patience actually lasted 1,600 years. Man didn't deserve to continue to live, and God blessed them and experienced God's common grace, uh, especially with people who were in, in total rebellion with him. But God lasted 1,600 years before he pronounced judgment. Where are we today? We're 4,500 years into this thing since the flood. And who knows when the end will be. But we see God as being extremely patient. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, you better be ready. Because just as God pronounced judgment in Genesis, and mankind was not looking or listening to God, it's going to be a huge surprise to men when God returns the second time. But just as it happened the first time, rest assured, Jesus says, it's going to happen again. So in verse 5, let me just point out a few things. As, as um, God saw mankind, the verse, Bible says in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. God saw. What did he see? That every, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was man here in in this um, period of time. Every intention, every thought was only evil continually. Verse 6, we see how God felt. Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord regretted. He was grieved. Was he sorry in the sense that he was surprised at what mankind had come to? No. God knew exactly um, what was going to transpire, and what he was going to have to do. But even uh, in his judgment, pronouncing judgment and, and destroying mankind, 
God still grieves. God is still sorrowful for what he has to do. But he must do this, church, because he is holy. We want God to be a judge. We don't want God to be apathetic towards sin. We want justice. We don't want the heart of God to say, oh well. That's not love. And humanity, sinful man, a man who's in rebellion against God, he reads Genesis chapter 7 and 8. And he he asks this question, how can a God of love do that to humanity? That's not love. No, it's God's justice. And the Bible is very clear. God must punish sin. God doesn't whisper about sin. Regardless of what sin it is, God is very clear that he must punish sin. And so what does God say? We see what God saw. We see how God felt. And in verse 7, we see what God says. He must blot man off the face of the earth. This is what God's holy nature demands when it comes to sin, if man does not repent. God will ultimately go there. Does God want to go there? God proved how much he loved us by sending his son, Jesus, to die for our sin. Sin cost God his only son. But that's how much God loves us. He was willing to sacrifice his sin so that you and I wouldn't have to go to hell to experience the consequences of God's wrath. But in order to avoid that, you must believe what Christ has done for you. God can't be passive about man's sinfulness. Something was done sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and something will be done at the end of time just as he did in Genesis 6 he's going to do it in Revelation chapter 19 I believe he's coming back verse 8 I love verse 8 As bad as this is, as dark as this is going to get, verse 8, but, 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't because of how good Noah was. This is the grace of God. And God chose a man. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God always provides a way of escape. And so my encouragement to you this morning is don't miss the boat. Noah's going to build a boat. Jeff's going to go through this uh, in the next over the next two weeks. Well, you know what? There's not a boat to get back into. Can't get into my boat. My boat's too small. And my boat occasionally leaks. Who's our ark? Our ark is the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, that's how God is going to protect you. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 2. He knows how to protect. He knows how to rescue the godly. But in order for you to be godly, doesn't mean that you roll up your sleeves and do as many good things as you possibly can. The only way you become godly, righteous, pure in the eyes of God is through the blood of Jesus. It required a sacrifice for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And that shadow of a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 became the perfect sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And when you and I believe in what Jesus has done, guess what? You don't have to fear the judgment. And that is the grace of God. Heed the warning. Surrender your life to Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, my encouragement to you is may this be the day of your salvation. And when you tell him you believe, forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. God hears that prayer. God wipes away all your sin, shame, and guilt. And you become perfect in the eyes of God. You know, Bob Tharp's not here this morning. He's uh, still uh, up north. There are snowbirds. But if you were to go up to uh, Bob Tharp and ask him, how you doing today, Bob? He'd say, I'm perfect. Why does he say that? 
Because in the eyes of God, he is. Because he's a follower, believer in Jesus Christ. God did that in his life. You can't do that. Don't miss the boat. Jesus is our boat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, I pray that, God, if you're speaking to hearts this morning, God, may today be the day of their salvation. May they stop thinking about it, and may they just get on board. Because, Jesus, you are our ark that is going to see us through to the into all eternity. Thank you, Father, for that hope that's in Christ. That even in the midst of all this bad news, God, your grace is there, your patience is there, and that you're calling people to yourself. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to stand firm on your word. Help us to be your witnesses. Especially, Lord, to those who question your nature. Who question your love. God, in sharing our story, talking about your grace, God, may people come to know you. God, you are good. We thank you for allowing us to be here this morning to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen.